Our Heavenly Father, we're in need of instruction and encouragement in these dark and despairing times. But here today is a portion of your word that provides both instruction and encouragement. Send your spirit to open our hearts and to apply these words powerfully to each of us here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we look at two parables today. The first parable we'll look at is about sowing a seed in a field. Wait a minute. Wasn't last week's sermon about sowing a seed in a field? Wait a minute. Wasn't the parable before that about sowing seed in the ground? Well, that's right. The first three parables each are about sowing, they're about seed, and they're about ground or a field. But they're about very different things, uh, although they're related to each other. The first parable is about sowing the seed of the word of the kingdom in four different kinds of soil. The second is about sowing the sons of the kingdom amidst the darnel. And the third and fourth are similar about, similarly about the growing in relating to the kingdom, but they teach us a very different lesson. Well, one thing I'd like to point out before we dig in is those first two parables viewed one way could be seen as kind of discouraging in that the first one, the good seed is sown, but only one of four different kinds of soil responds fruitfully. And the second one, the sons of the kingdom are sown but they're surrounded by darnel, by the sons of the wicked one. And both of those has a happy ending. The fourth soil produces bumper crop of fruit. And at the end of, uh, comes the harvest when the angels of God come and part his children from the wicked. Uh, but these next two parables have a more encouraging note built into them. And I think we could use that. So let's look together, as usual, simply firstly focusing our attention on the parables themselves verses 31 through 33, and the first of the two. They're much briefer parables than the first two parables were. The first is mustard seed, capital letter A, mustard seed, verses 31 32. Here's the way I translated the Greek text for you. Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field which on the one hand is smallest of all the seeds, but on the other, when it is grown, it is largest of the garden herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the heaven come and shelter in its branches. So I see standing out here in this parable three points. Let's focus our eyes on these three points. And the first that stands out is the size of the seed sown. Letter A, the size of the seed sown. Jesus says it is the smallest of all the seeds. And indeed, the seed of the mustard uh, plant is a tiny little speck of a seed. It's a black seed. The plant that it um, creates uh, produces a sharp, uh, tangy spice from its grains, from its leaves, greens that can be used in a diet. Um, and it is proverbially small. By that I mean it's, it was used as a figure of speech for smallness. Jesus uses it that way. You remember in Matthew 17 when he talks about the teeniest, tiniest kind of faith, what does he use? Faith like a 
mustard seed because that was proverbially tiny. The rabbis used it in the very same way when they wanted to use a figure of speech to note something was eensy, beansy, teeny weeny. It was the mustard seed that they'd go to. The size of it was like, I don't know, maybe that tenth of a grain of rice, maybe even smaller than that. One way to think of it is it takes 750 mustard seeds to weigh one grain. Now, how much is a grain? A grain is a 28th of an ounce. So it takes 750 mustard seeds to weigh one 28th of an ounce. They're eensy beensy. That is a technical term. They're eensy beensy seeds. Now, some people have said, eager to look for and find all the errors they can in the Bible, this is a scientific error. Because, in fact, the African orchid seed is smaller than the mustard seed. So, what are the odds that Jesus' hearers believed that he was teaching them a lecture on uh, botanical taxonomy? Is that what he was doing? Was he lecturing about all the size of all the seeds in all the planet? Or was he simply using a very familiar uh, uh, phrase that everybody local would understand because, in fact, this was the tiniest seed that any farmer in that land would be sowing in his garden or in his field. And that is the case of the matter. It was the tiniest seed that any farmer in that area would be sowing. And it is one of the tiniest seeds there are. Uh, Professor John Frame puts this very well and very helpfully, and this is an important lesson he teaches. Speaking about this, he says, Scripture generally speaks the way ordinary people speak. That's really worth repeating. Scripture generally speaks the way ordinary people speak. It's absurd to imagine that Jesus here is giving his hearers the conclusion of an exhaustive botanical taxonomy. And it is irresponsible to demand that we read the text in such a way. So is this a scientific error? No, not at all. They understood exactly what he meant by it. Of all the seeds they know in that area, the teeniest and the tiniest is the mustard seed. Secondly, focus on the sowing. S-O-W-I-N-G. The sowing. Jesus specifically says that it's like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. He doesn't just say a mustard seed and then talk about its uh, produce, but he mentions the fact that a man sows it. And that's going to come up later. It actually is a significant point. Uh, in fact, the verb translated sow, the Greek word spero, is used 14 times in this chapter. And in the whole rest of the 28 chapters of Matthew, it's only used three more times. So there's a real focus on sowing in this chapter, and that is significant. I'll, I'll return to that later. Uh, but here, uh, uh, the seed is sown, Jesus says specifically. So it's a tiny seed, and it's sown. And the third point, letter C, is the size of the seed grown. G-R-O-W-N. First, we looked at the size of the seed sown, and then the sowing, and now the size of the seed grown. What does Jesus say? He says, when it is grown, it is largest of the garden herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the heaven come and shelter in its branches. Uh, indeed, this tiny speck becomes a, a plant that can be 10, 15 feet high and even taller out of this tiny thing. There is a, a, just a vast disproportion between the size of the seed sown and the relatively enormous size of the plant 
that it produces. It looks more like a bush, but it could be said to be a tree, not in a tactical sense, but obviously in the sense that it is indeed big enough for birds to come and land on the branches. So a, a familiar, familiar sight there in Palestine, the mustard plant, large bushy trees grown out of a teeny tiny seed. So what is the main impression then as we, Jesus means us to picture these things that he tells in parable. What's the main impression of this? It is wondrous growth. Number two, wondrous growth. Out of all proportion to its beginning, the tiny seed produces this relatively enormous tree-like bush. Uh, Jesus specifically mentions birds, birds nesting in its branches. And you notice in the LSB, some of that was in capital letters. And you know that means that they take it as quoting from the Old Testament. Well, in fact, there is an illusion there. Uh, attentive Bible readers will catch that it's, an, it's a verbal allusion back to uh, Daniel chapter 4, where King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. You remember any dreams of a tree that becomes an enormous tree. And in Daniel 4.12... He saw that the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And there, that's a picture of the Gentile little kingdoms, uh, little state kingdoms that were under Nebuchadnezzar's uh, leadership and rulership. So there's a picture here then of something enormous that grows and is so relatively big that smaller things can come and nestle within it. That, that's the mental picture that is in this. So we'll talk about what it means a bit later. But let's turn our attention to the second parable then and understand it. And it's shorter, but it's a little more of a job to understand what Jesus means by it, I think. The second parable is 11, capital letter B, verse 33. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of the heavens is like leaven which a woman to took and hid in three sias of wheat flour until the whole became leavened. So again, I see three points standing out here, particularly singled out by Jesus. We need to understand these. First is the leaven. Now, leaven, of course, was used in making bread. The ladies did not go down to Panera or to Kroger's or Walmart and buy their bread. They commonly baked them at home. Now, you may have a modern translation that says yeast. That's actually inaccurate. It wasn't yeast per se that they were using. It was a, a bit of the previous lump's dough. They would just keep some dough, like, like we do with the lumps of sourdough. They would keep some dough and keep it going and keep putting in each new batch of bread. And so you'd take some leavened, uh, some leavened dough and you'd put it in the new batch of flour and work it in and it would leaven the whole. So that's what the leaven means. That's what we're talking about here. Secondly, the hiding Jesus makes a point. She doesn't, he doesn't simply say that she took an etheto, she put it in, or any of the many other verbs he could have used, but that she hid it in. And so I think, again, we're supposed to picture this, and the picture we get is that she has this little lump, and here's this whole bunch of dough, we'll talk about that in a second, and she sticks it in it so that it disappears. It's gone. It's gone, but then eventually you see the effects of it through all the flour, through all the new dough that she's put together as it leavens the entire part. And that brings us to letter C, the leavening. The leaven, the hiding, and the leavening, L-E-A-V-E-N-I-N-G. 
when she sticks that bit of leaven in to the new lump, into the new dough, it's hidden, but a process begins. And that process eventually permeates the whole. It's invisible at first. It may eventually become visible. You may see bubbling. You'll see rising. You'll see a change to the, to the lump as a result of this thing that's vanished in the lump. You'll see a change eventually. But at the first, it's invisible. But it is inexorable. It goes through and it leavens the whole lump. Now, Jesus specifies a size to it. This is a new thing. He's not told us what what area of ground is in the first, cell, uh, first parable. He hasn't told us the size of the field in the second parable. But here he specifies that there are three siyas or satas. Uh, siya is the Hebrew name. The, the sata is just the Greek equivalent of, of this measurement. Three siyas. Now you need to understand that this is a lot. This is not a normal woman's um, uh, production of bread. This is enough bread to feed a small village. This is worth noting. It's enough bread to feed 100 to 150 people. So this is a lot of dough. And she doesn't put an armful of leaven into it. She puts a bit of leaven into it. But that bit of leaven she puts in eventually spreads and leavens that whole large lump of dough and produces the bread to feed all these people that she's expecting. Well, now here we specifically need to stop and ask the question, what is the meaning of the leaven? Because there has been, and there is, a lot of, a lot of controversy about that. Some of you must have heard this, so I want to, to be somewhat thorough about this. Let's look at what the Bible says and remind us the first and most obvious thing you probably think of. It, when you think of unleavened, what do you think of? You think of the Passover. Exodus twelve fifteen. The instruction in Exodus 12, 15, there in your outline, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Well, that is a pretty serious bit of instruction there, not just a small thing. He very much underlines that he expects everybody to remove and search and remove all of the leaven from their house, and then they have a feast of unleavened bread. Letter B, it can be associated with evil in Scripture. I say that very carefully. It can be associated with evil in Scripture. Mostly you see this up front in the verses in the New Testament. I'll read you a few. You can jot them down. Matthew 16, verse 6, Jesus will say, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which, of course, my boys, the disciples, puzzle over and totally misunderstand at first. And in verse 12, we read that they then understood that he said to beware the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And does he mean it's good teaching they should embrace? No, it's bad teaching they need to watch out for, and he likens it to leaven. It's that kind of leaven you don't want, he says. Similarly, in Luke 12, verse 1, he began saying to his disciples first, be on guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So he uses the figure of speech of leaven and compares it to hypocrisy. So their teaching he doesn't want spreading through them as leaven does. Their hypocrisy he doesn't want spreading through them as leaven does. Paul uses the expression at least a couple of times. One in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you remember he's talking there about the church member who is openly involved in this uh, sexually immoral relationship and the church is proud of it. 
because of how gracious in everything they are. And Paul is just absolutely uh, flabbergasted over it and said this would shock a Gentile. Um, and he reproves them and tells them to get him out of their midst. And what does he say in 1 Corinthians 5, 6? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, the influence of this one tolerated, embraced, enabled sexual immorality is going to spread throughout the whole church like leaven does. And then finally in Galatians 5.9, he's warning the Galatians against these Judaizers who are trying to get them back under the law and the observations of the law, circumcision, the calendar, the diet, the whole nine. And, and telling them that they need these things in order to be really right in God's eyes and saved. And he says, warning them about these people, he says in Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's kind of a proverbial expression to him. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So in each of these, leaven is used as a symbol of something evil that left alone is going to spread like leaven. You put it in a lump and left alone, it's going to spread throughout the lump. So, some have noted this, and noting this, they've said, well, Jesus must be talking about something evil then. In this parable, leaven has to be something evil. In fact, they, they, these same people find both the parables to be evil, that this, this tree is, is unnaturally big, and it's a bad thing that it's big from the mustard seed. And leaven is, is a, a bad symbol. Now, these are mostly dispensationalists. I'm a dispensationalist, but dispensationalists aren't all just like one rock with the same thought about absolutely everything. And in this, uh, I've long disagreed. Uh, I and many others disagree with that view. But the, the view is that Jesus is warning here to him that he's speaking of the kingdom of God as Christendom, which is not what I've taught you, but, but they take it as being Christendom. And so the leaven is going to spread through this age, and then they plug in all the warnings from Paul about the apostasy of the latter days, and well, that's this leaven, they say, uh, that Jesus is talking about. Well, leaven is associated with evil in Scripture. It can be, I say, letter C, but not necessarily. <laughs> it's not always associated with evil, letter C, but not necessarily. For instance, why was leaven removed in Passover? Was it removed because leaven was evil? No, Scripture expressly says why they're days of unleavened bread. Do you, do you know why they're days of unleavened bread? Because it represents what a hurry they were to get out of Egypt. Uh, the Scripture expressly says that. Exodus chapter 12, verse 39. And they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So why did, was it unleavened originally? They didn't have time to leaven it. So why did they have to make sure that it was unleavened every time they did the feast? Deuteronomy 16.3 tells us expressly why. And it's not because leaven is evil. Deuteronomy 16.3, you shall not eat leavened bread with it during the Passover uh, uh, feast of unleavened bread, you shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with, we eat with it unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, so that you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. It'd be like eating raw eggs or something that just wasn't fixed, wasn't finished. It was always a reminder that when they left Egypt, they left in a hurry. God had 
let fall the judgment of the, uh, of the death angel on the firstborn, and uh, the Egyptians wanted them out, out, out. And they drove them out, and they went out in haste. How fast? So fast they didn't have time to leaven their bread. And so that's why the bread was unleavened, not because leaven was necessarily evil, but because it was a symbol of the fact, a representative of the fact that they'd had to hurry out of Egypt. In fact, other sacrifices are expressly commanded to be offered with leaven. For instance, Leviticus 7.13, sacrifice of peace offerings described there, he shall bring near his offering with cakes of leavened bread. So in that case, leavened bread is part of the sacrifice. Or again, Leviticus 23, verses 17 and 18. You shall bring in from your places of habitation two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of a fine flour baked with leaven. And that is a burnt offering that is a soothing aroma to Yahweh. So he accepts it, but it's offered with leaven. So leaven is not of itself evil. It is not of itself a symbol of evil. It is a symbol of how quickly evil can spread. We might use another example uh, for a rapid spread, but, but they all understood for a thorough spread, leaven was a good picture. If it were itself uh, evil, why did not God simply forbid leaven? He's obviously able to forbid kinds of food. Pork was forbidden, not because it was evil. In fact, it's very yummy. But uh, they weren't able to eat it because god that's part of how God distinguished them from the nations around them. They had a special diet. They had special clothes. They had a special calendar. This was part of how he distinguished them from the nations around them. He certainly could have said no leaven, but he didn't say no leaven. He allowed leaven. That was normal diet, except on certain occasions, particularly the Passover. So, put all that together. What does it teach us? The upshot is this. The symbol of leaven is not necessarily of anything evil. The symbol of leaven is something small that can permeate through something large. Something that can of itself spread through a large body. The literal leaven spreads through a larger lump of dough. And back to the examples, the leaven of a unrepentant person in a sexual uh, relationship, immoral relationship that everybody knows about, the false teaching of the Pharisees, the false teaching of the Judaizers, so forth and so on. All these are evil influences that, like leaven, can spread. The evil is the thing. The leaven's the picture of how it spreads. So what is it here that's spreading? And what, are we, what is the idea of the picture here? Well, I point out to you that Jesus specifies the amount of flour. Now, he doesn't do that with any of the other parables that we've seen so far. But he specifies that there are three siyas of flour. Now, that's a large amount, but it's a particular amount. And what I think that he's picturing here is these are, are the elect sons of the kingdom. What have we seen so far? The first parable was about the word of the kingdom. Jesus says that expressly. The second parable is about the sons of the kingdom. So here, the leaven is put in a specific size loaf, and it goes through the entire loaf. And that represents the a number of the elect. And this is something that would be very important to them. Now, this, this uh, note of election is something that's in the Bible from start to finish, and it's been touched on in Matthew a number of times and, and will be again. But uh, right now, 
the ministry looks like it's in danger of complete failure. The, that generation has rejected the word. The leaders of that generation have rejected the word. The cities they went to and evangelized did not repent at their preaching. So what's the future of this? Well, Jesus tells one parable, the mustard seed, that talks about something really tiny getting really big. And he tells another one about something small going into a large body, but going through every part of that body. And that represents the people who Jesus will talk about in, in John chapter 17, verse 2 where he talks about the people that God gave to him to give eternal life to, God's elect. He talked about them back in Matthew chapter 11, where he said that um, the Son, that no man knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal them. He'll speak about the elect in Matthew 24, when he's talking about the latter days, Matthew 24, 22. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. As long as God has people he's chosen who need to hear the gospel, he will make sure every one of them hears the gospel. Matthew 24, 31. At the end of this tribulation period, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. It's a very large number, but it's a number known through God, to God. And as the leaven shows, everyone will be leavened. Everyone in that number will hear and believe the word of God. Jesus' blood will not be shed in vain. Jesus dies to secure their redemption, and every last one of them will hear the gospel, and every last one of them will believe the gospel. The leaven will go through the whole lump. Paul talks about this same thing in Romans chapter 11, many other places, but Romans 11 verses 5 through 7, speaking of Israel's failure to believe in that day, connecting it to the sovereignty of God and God's plan for Israel and for the world. And he says in Romans 11:5, in this way, then, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Very literally, a remnant according to election of grace. Election by grace. Selection choice by grace. There is a remnant according to God's gracious choice has come to be. But if it is by grace, it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Verse 7, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but the elect obtained it, the chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Every last one will hear the word of God and will believe, no matter how it looks now. This is God's assured plan. So what is the main impression then of this image of the leaven? The main impression is of a wondrous spread. The mustard seed is a wondrous growth. Something tiny comes to produce something really out of proportion to its size. And what is the le leaven? That a small bit of leaven goes through a whole large lump until every part of it is leavened. They're a subset, yes, but Scripture says they are an innumerable, innumerable multitude. That they're not all people, but they are a, 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 a group of people who John certainly could not choose when he saw the vision in Revelation the word of the kingdom will reach every one of them who God means to reach during this age. That's the activity of this age, and that's one of the mysteries of the kingdom. So he gives those two prophecies, I'm sorry, those two parables, and then he turns to a prophecy in verses 34 and 35, which is also uh, takes some 
a head scratching to understand how it fits here. All these things Jesus spoke in parables to the crowds, and without a parable he was speaking nothing to them, in order that what was said through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden from the foundation of the world. So let's first talk about the original prophecy quoted from there. And the prophecy is not from one of the prophets. It's actually from the book of Psalms. It's from Psalm 78. Turn there with me, would you please? Psalm 78. Right there in the middle of your Bible. Not too hard to find. And I want to start by looking at the psalm because I I, got to say at the outset, you look at that and you just say, "I, I don't even get why he's quoting that except the word parable is there. But if it's a psalm, how is it, how is it a prophecy? And how is it being fulfilled in this day? But the answer comes when you look at the psalm more fully. Let me just tell you before we start digging in there together that sometimes, though the New Testament will just quote a part of a prophecy or a part of the Old Testament, it means us to plug in that whole section. It doesn't quote the whole section. Like I might do to you if, if I quoted a familiar song title or something but I mean you to think about the whole song and what it's about. And so here he quotes from the beginning of this parable, I'm mean, sorry, this, um, this psalm, but it's the message of the whole psalm that plugs in here. And before I even get in there, let's talk about who wrote it. So we can talk about its nature as prophecy. It says, a maskeel of Asaph, a song that's meant to make us think, to teach us, and we're supposed to reflect on it. <coughs> but the writer of it is Asaph. Now, it's important to note that Scripture says that Asaph was a prophet. We read in 1 Chronicles 25, verse 2, that he was a prophet. And and what's a prophet? He's somebody who receives and speaks direct revelation from God. So whatever else Asaph was, he spoke the word of God. And 2 Chronicles 29, 30 says he was a seer. Now, that doesn't mean somebody who's got 20-20 vision, but a seer, so the particular Hebrew verb, choseh, there, is used um, of seeing visions, of seeing what God reveals. So visionary revelation from God makes him a seer. Speaking the word of God makes him a prophet. So he's a good one to quote as, as speaking of prophecy. Before I get into the psalm, let me remind you that prophecy is not always prediction. That if you say, well, what is the, what is the central idea of a prophecy? Very often it's prediction, but it's not always prediction. What is the central idea of prophecy? What makes a prophecy a prophecy? It's that one is speaking God's word directly revealed. As I teach scripture, I'm not prophesying. Because this is not something God has given to me directly. We all have the same revelation. So I'm preaching it, I'm teaching it, but the person who wrote it is the one who prophesied it. (laughs) And so a prophet is somebody on whose lip is the Word of God, who speaks the Word of God, in whose mouth is the Word of God. And so as we read Psalm 78, this whole psalm is a prophecy, even though it's not predictive. Why? Because it was written by a prophet, because it's the Word of God. So let's look at it and ask ourselves, and I think it'll be pretty quickly obvious, why did Matthew think of this? Because this is Matthew speaking, not Jesus here. Why did he think of this to explain Jesus speaking to them in parables? Look at it, Psalm 78. Give ear, O people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. 
and I'll pour forth dark sayings of old. Well, there's the part Matthew quotes. Now, it's interesting, dark sayings, you might think, okay, this is things that nobody could know, and yet read on, which we have heard and known and our fathers have recounted to us. We will not conceal them from uh, their children, but recount to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh and his strength and his wonderful deeds, which he has done. So, on the one hand, he's going to talk about facts that everybody knows, but he is going to reveal a pattern that even those who knew the facts did not see. He's going to show them God's view and God's interpretation of these facts. Because it was meant, verse 5 says, to be taught from generation to generation so that generations would not repeat the sins of their fathers. Look, verse 7, that they should set their confidence in God and not forget the deeds of God, but observe his commandments, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Who does that sound like? A whole generation, stubborn, rebellious, did not set their heart to seek after God. What's that like? Well, obviously, it's like his day. Obviously, it's like the fathers he's talking about, but, but what else is it like? It's like the people in Jesus' day. Do you remember he said generation over and over again? To whom shall I liken this generation? They're like children in a marketplace. He talks about this generation being like a guy who has a demon leave and he, he just cleans up his house and ends up with seven times as many demons plus. That generation, this generation, that generation is the fulfillment of this generation. They are like this generation, but they had a revelation of God like no other people had ever had. How? Because they had God himself in human form. So you see, uh, they uh, forgot the deeds of God. Well, what have we been seeing in Matthew chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11? What have we been seeing? Jesus doing the deeds of God. And are the Pharisees learning the lesson? Well, what brilliant conclusion did they draw from Jesus' performance of supernatural deeds. What was their conclusion about it? Did they agree that they were supernatural deeds? Yes, they did. But what source? The devil, they said. This is the fulfillment of this same type. And we see this played out cyclically in this long psalm. I'll just lift out a few verses. Like, for instance, um, speaking of the sons of Ephraim, verses 10 and following, they did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law, so they forgot his acts and his wondrous deeds that he'd shown them. He did wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, but they all just turned, they forgot about it. Verse uh, uh, 17, yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High, and in their heart they put God to the test, asking for food according to their desire. What just happened in Matthew chapter 12 after they committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What happened next? Show us a sign from heaven. Well, because he'd never done that before, right? Because he hadn't shown them any signs before. Oh, he had. He had shown them sign after sign after sign. Stopping storms, raising the dead, healing with a touch, healing with a word. Did they learn anything from all this? Not what they needed to just like this generation, you see. It wasn't the first time. And here they are going through the same steps and not even seeing it, you see. And so you could just go on, verses 21 and following. Yahweh heard and was full of wrath. 
and a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Now here's a little interesting tidbit. Absolutely no extra charge. The word salvation, what is the word salvation here in Hebrew? Yeshua. Yeshua, that's the Hebrew word. You say, that sounds familiar to me. I know I've heard Yeshua before. How have you heard Yeshua? That's Jesus. That's the name Jesus. His name is Yeshua, salvation. And so they didn't believe in his Yeshua. They didn't believe in his salvation. Wow. (laughs) Was that ever fulfilled in this generation uh, in which Matthew lived? And so Yahweh was uh, wrathful because of that. And look at verses 40 and following. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again they tested God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary. He performed his signs in Egypt and his miracles in the fields of Zoan. Yes, they did that, and the, the fathers in Jesus, they did the same thing, the same pattern. Uh, look at verses 56 and following. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God, did not keep his testimonies, turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow. Verse 59, God heard and was filled with wrath and greatly rejected Israel so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he caused to dwell among men, and gave up his strength to captivity and his beauty into the the hand of the adversary. He also gave over his people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. So what is about to happen to Israel? Now that they've seen the Messiah, they've seen God's Son, they've heard Him speak, they've seen His deeds, and they've rejected Him. What's going to happen to them now? This. The Romans will come and tear down the temple. Not a stone will remain on one another. There will be death and destruction, and they'll be kicked out of the land yet again because of the wrath of God falling on them for rejecting His Son. Just as we read here, they're just repeating not learning from, repeating the cycle and the pattern of their fathers. But here's an interesting way this psalm ends. Look at verse 70. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his inheritance and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded him, them according to the integrity of his heart and led them with his skillful hands. Is he just talking about the David who lived in his days? Is he talking about David who received the promise from God that he would never lack a son to sit on his son, on his throne, that his son would be the Messiah? And in fact, just remind yourself, turn back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. And what does Matthew title his gospel? What is the first words with which he greets us when we turn to this gospel? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he stresses David, as we saw when we read the genealogy. He stresses David in that genealogy because Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of David, but in his days he comes and he speaks the words of God. And just like their fathers who, whose history they possess in this book, 
And they possess Psalm 78, where Asaph tells them a parable that reminds them of their father's cycles of rejection and forgetting God's wonders and blinding their eyes and stuffing up, stuff, stuffing, stopping up their ears so as not to hear God's word. And they just walk right into those same exact footsteps. And that's why Jesus speaks to them in parables. You see, that's why he speaks to them in parables. Talking now about Matthew's quotation, all these things Jesus spoke in parables. There's a chiasm there. And without a parable, he was speaking nothing to them. The stress is the fact that he spoke in parables. So Asaph rehearses a pattern of rebellion that they were deliberately blind to in the men of his days. They were deliberately blind to the cycles of rebellion in their fathers. And so Jesus is speaking to people who were deliberately blind to the word of God and the works of God too. And so in their rebellion, they show very much whose sons they are. They're the sons of the rebellious fathers. They're not the sons of God. They're not the sons of the kingdom. So this generation very much fulfills the word of this prophetic psalm. And so Jesus speaks again to them in parables, as Asaph did in his day. Well, now we've looked at the, the features and the facets. Let's talk together about the point of the parables. What is this meant to teach us? Why does Jesus tell this to his disciples? First, let's see what it teaches us about the kingdom, letter A. What does it teach us about the kingdom? Talk about the seeds of the first three parables one more time. So what is the seed in the first parable, the seed of the sower that lands on four kinds of ground? Jesus tells us in verse 19, what does he say that seed is? The word of the kingdom. That seed is the word of the kingdom. Okay, second parable is the wheat and the darnel. What does the seed of the wheat represent? Jesus tells us, verse 38, the sons of the kingdom. Well, that's interesting. That's so parallel. The first seed is the word of the kingdom. The second seed is the sons of the kingdom. So who are the, fo uh, the, 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 the focus of the third and fourth parables? They're the sons of the kingdom who, who accept the word of the kingdom. Those who, unlike the darnel, unlike the three soils, accept the word of the kingdom because they're sons of the kingdom. They've heard the word of the kingdom. They become sons of the kingdom. And their beginning is tiny and infinitesimal and hidden, but they will grow beyond all imagination because of the power of God. Their, their beginning, this is the picture here, their beginning is utterly unimpressive. It's, it's, it's hidden. It's like this tiny speck of a seed. It's like this bit of leaven hidden in a massive lump of dough. It's just nothing at the beginning. But the fruition is enormous. You could not tell the end from the beginning. You could not look at that tiny speck of a seed and say, boy, I'll bet that's going to be a massive bush. You could not, if you didn't know it, you could not look at that bit of leaven and say, well, that's going to go through a whole big lump of dough if you didn't already know that. And yet, this is what both do. So that teaches us that the, this phase of the kingdom of God is going to produce something all out of proportion to its beginning. You cannot look at the beginning and decide what the end is going to be because that's not God's purpose. God has a massive and huge and global uh, end in mind to the process. But that's the second thing that it teaches us, the fact that it's going to be a process, that getting from here to there is going to be a process. Uh, the seed doesn't fall out of heaven like a big plant. It starts tiny and then it grows. 
The leaven doesn't instantly leaven the entire lump. It goes into the lump and it eventually permeates the entire lump. It doesn't take a lot of time, but it does take time. And, and what is this contrast? I just remind you, because I've learned that that's important about teaching. What is the contrast against the prophecies in the Old Testament that on first read give the impression that, well, Messiah comes and boom, there's the kingdom. Son of David comes, and the kingdom instantly comes. There's instantly global peace and righteousness, and everything's great. But turns out, no. Messiah comes, and he's rejected, and he dies, and is buried. And he rises from the grave in the sense of the right hand of the Father, and that's still not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is postponed until the end of this period, and that's why these are mysteries. You wouldn't have gotten that instantly out of reading the Old Testament prophecies. That's what Jesus is opening up to us. It's going to be a very small beginning, and there's going to be a process. There's going to be time between here and there, between the first coming and the second coming for the kingdom, the first coming to make atonement, the second coming to set up the kingdom of God. There's going to be a space and a process between those two points. But... It's going to be thorough, and it's going to be ultimately large. Like the verse that we quoted at the beginning of the service, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Here, he's speaking in this tiny little backwater podunk town. Nothing to the rest of the world. And yet from there will go out the word of God to the rest of the world. The beginning, almost submicroscopic, but the end, glorious. A bishop of London from the 1800s, J.C. Ryle, said it beautifully, so I'll just quote him. He says, the beginnings of the gospel were exceedingly small. It was a religion which seemed at first so feeble and helpless and powerless that it could not live. Its first founder was one who was poor in this world and ended his life by dying the death of a malefactor on the cross. Its first adherents were a little company whose number probably did not exceed a thousand when the Lord Jesus left this world. Its first preachers were a few fishermen and publicans who were, most of them, unlearned and ignorant men. Its first starting point was a despised corner of the earth called Judea, a petty tributary province of the vast empire of Rome. Its first doctrine was eminently calculated to call forth the hatred of the natural heart. Christ crucified was to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Its first movements brought down on its friends persecution from all quarters Pharisees and Sadducees, Jews and Gentiles, ignorant idolaters and self-conceited philosophers all agreed in hating and opposing Christianity. It was a sect everywhere spoken against. If ever there was a religion which was a little grain of seed at its beginning, that religion was the gospel. But the progress of the gospel after the seed was once cast into the earth was great, steady, and continuous. In spite of persecution, opposition, and violence, Christianity gradually spread and increased. And what would my demonstration of that point be? Us. 8,000 miles as the jet flies from where all this started 
And yet here we are, worshipers of Christ according to that gospel and that tiny, hopeless beginning. So yes, indeed. Secondly, about the program. We've talked about the kingdom, the fact that it's a progress, starting with a tiny beginning. So what is the program? What is God's will? It's not his will, as we've seen, that we march forward with, with arms to kill all the unbelievers. Let the darnel grow, God says. That's not his program. We're not like Israel. We don't identify some piece of real estate and claim it as being the kingdom of Christ. We don't set up the kingdom of God. He will. That's not our program. What is our program? Three letters. Any guesses? So. S-O-W. That's our program. So. Oh, now you remember. So let's talk about that. Number one, we're to sow hopefully. That's how we sow. We sow hopefully. And let me ask at the outset, why so? Why do I say so? S-O-W. So. Why so? What did I point out earlier? The verb so is used 14 times in this chapter. And only three times in the whole rest of the big gospel of Matthew. So there's an emphasis here on so, so, so. And I'll add to that five more times the word sperma, seed. Spero and sperma are related to each other. So sowing seed in total 19 times in this chapter. That's a big, big deal. So what does that teach us? It teaches us that this age between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is an age of what? Sowing. It's an age of sowing. Oh no, I thought it was an age of entertaining. No, it's not an age of entertaining. Not for the child of God. Oh, I thought it was an age of therapy. No, it's not an age of therapy. Not for the child of God. I thought it was an age of experiences. No, it's not an age of experiences. It's an age of sowing. Turn to 2 Timothy 4 with me. And Paul is just saying something here right in line with what Jesus is telling us in these parables. Just remind yourself, 2 Timothy 4. So Paul, about to die, speaking to his apprentice, Timothy, says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Well, he's talked about that in these parables, hasn't he? The harvest when the Son of Man comes and sends his angels to judge. To judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, oh, that comes at the end of this age. All right, I'm tracking with you, Paul. What do you want me to do? Preach the word. That's it. That's it. Not a word about entertainment, about dances, about uh, smoke machines and glitter machines and zip lines and any of that. All those things are distractions at best, and they're seldom at their best. No, the job is preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. So whether it seems like a good time for it or it seems like a bad time for it, here's your job. Preach the word, he says. Re Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, turn away their ears from the truth, and turn aside to myths. So what do I do when that happens? Surely I've got to change change what I do if it's not working, right? Oh no, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry because I'm being poured out. So he says, I preached the word of God till they killed me and here's what I want you to do, Timothy. Preach the word of God until they kill you. That's the program of this age. So, 
so, so. That's what God authorizes for this age. So, so, so. And you see it through the New Testament, the emphasis, the gospel, the word of God. That's what we're here for. That's why so. But why so in hope? Because it looks very discouraging. Everywhere we look, darnel, 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 darnel. They're everywhere. And our beginning is so small, and we're still so small. We're, 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 we're not uh, uh, owners of vast armies and, and hardware and machinery. We're still the faithful, those who really believe what the Bible teaches. It seems like a very small number. But what is it that gives us hope? Armies and machinery? Well, I remember a verse. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So why can I sow in hope? Because my Lord tells me it's like a mustard seed. You can't judge it by the beginning. You let it loose, put it where God says to put it, and watch what he does with it. It's like leaven. You let go of it and see what God does with it. It has a power that God gives it that is beyond anything you can give to it. So you just trust God's word about what he's going to do with it and do what God says that you should do. So... Give out the word. Give yourself to the word. Learn it, live it, tell it. So that's what hope, what faith does. It gives us hope despite what we see, but we see the word of God and we have faith in the word of God. And that's how we can sow with hope. Hope doesn't need to see something happening right now because hope rests on faith and faith rests on God's word. And we have God's word of promise. So we need to do what God says to do by faith, we need to not give ourselves to do what works. That's Americanism at its worst. The idea that whatever works is good. Whatever works is good. And churches have bought into that lock, stock, and barrel and given up their lampstands in the process. What God calls us to is to believe Him, do His word, be faithful and God-centered and leave the results to him. So hopefully, and secondly, so boldly. What does that verse say? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The woman puts the leaven in the dough and it's gone. It vanishes. It's out of her hand. But it's the power inherent in the leaven that does the changes. And the Word of God is powerful by the power of God. As I've said, it's not magic, but it certainly is supernatural. It is the Word of God, and it's what God uses to save sinners and change lives. Amen? God uses His Word to save sinners. Where did I get that idea? Some systematic theology? Well, it's in the good ones, yes, but I got it from Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel. Not my fine preaching of it. Not my eloquence. Not my tricks or machinations or strategies. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Isaiah 51 verse, sorry, 55 verse 11. You know this verse. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So we preach and spread God's word, and what God does with it, God does with that. Amen? And that's what we're called to, and that's what this age is. 
And so we talked about the fact that the leaven represents the number of the elect. Well, how do you know who the elect are? Well, Paul says he knew. What? How did he know? Did he know because he had special apostolic, you know, eyes? Did he have special peepstone eyes so he could see who the elect are? <gasps> it's oh, he, not him though, but boy, she is. She's elect. No, not at all. First Thessalonians 1 verses 4 and 5 tell us how Paul recognized the elect. What showed the elect? 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 4 and 5. Knowing, brothers beloved by God, your election for, well, here it comes. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance. When God used his word to save, he knew that they were sons of the kingdom. He knew they were the chosen of God. He knew they were the ones God chose to be his own because they heard the word of God. It landed in the good soil. That tiny, tiny seed began to grow. That bit of leaven began to permeate the whole, and there was a child of God born by the word of God. So let's wrap this up then. What was the unexpected mystery then that Jesus teaches in these parables about the kingdom? Well, what he teaches was that there would be a process rather than a simple dramatic conclusion. That between the two comings there'd be a process during which the word of God would be sown. And those, that process would separate the two comings of the king. His coming to make atonement and his coming to establish the kingdom on earth. Second, what is surprising about the word's power? We called this the surprising power of the word. Well, that it would spread so far from a tiny, weak-seeming beginning and that God would, um, uh, they would embrace so many disparate people, would spread through the lives of so many uh, in its power. So we need faithfully and hopefully to sow, sow, sow the word and watch it vanish and then watch what God does with it. Uh, one more time, let's hear Bishop Ryle. He says this so well. He says, uh, regarding the hopeful, um, happy message of these parables, he said, let us learn from this parable never to despair of any work for Christ because its first beginnings are feeble and small. A single minister in some large town district, a single missionary amidst myriads of savage heathen, a single reformer in the midst of a fallen and corrupt church. Each and all of these may seem at first sight utterly unlikely to do any good. To the eye of man, the work may appear too great, and the instrument employed quite unequal to it. Let us never give way to such thoughts. Let us remember the parables before us and take courage. We should not begin to count numbers, and confer with flesh and blood, we should believe that one man with the living seed of God's truth on his side, or one woman for that matter, like Luther or Knox, may turn a nation upside down. If God is with him, none shall stand against him. In spite of men and devils, the seed that he shows, the seed that he sows shall become a large tree. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and for what it reveals to us. And we pray, above all, that it will give us hope and confidence in the fact that you know what, you're, what you are doing. You are preparing to bring your kingdom to earth. And in that process, 
you are bringing sons and daughters into the kingdom. You're doing that by the word of the kingdom. And as we preach the word of the gospel, the word of Christ, you do your work. Your spirit does his work in opening blind eyes and deaf ears and giving life to dead hearts so that uh, the leaven may permeate every bit of the lump. And we thank you for this glorious work, and we thank you for how you were glorified by these small beginnings. You're glorified by using weak vessels. That is so encouraging to us. You're not, as the, as the Old Testament says, you're not constricted to save by many or few. You get glory for yourself by saving through few. Like with Gideon. And you looked and he had thousands of people, which he thought was way too few. You said, you've got way too many. And you pared it down, pared it down, pared it down so that you might be glorified. And Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the glory may be of God, not of us. That's us too, God, and we glory in that. We're small. We're weak. We're nothing in the eyes of the world. But you're everything, and your word is a treasure, and it's powerful. Give it power. Spread it to great fruit, we pray. Do that through us, in us, we pray. For Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen.